Amen. I want to thank Brother Luke for listening to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works through you, it's a glorious thing. So thank you, Brother Luke. Please pray for me that the Holy Spirit will move through me for the remaining time. That's something there that you can't generate. That's something that, that comes upon you and it comes from on high. So we praise God for it and thank the Lord for what we've heard. And I believe with all of my heart, all of my heart, that as the approaching time of the Lord's return gets nearer and nearer, God's people through following the promises of God, like Brother Luke has just described to us, the promise that was given and that God was faithful to, Stephen saw Jesus. He saw him. And I believe with all of my heart that the people of God will see Jesus in a special way, in a very special way, a manifest way, when they stand for these truths and for the things like Stephen did, no matter what the cost. You will see Jesus and experience him in a special way. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalms 85, Psalm 85, I freely admit to you this morning that this is a portion of scripture that has stirred around in my mind for years and years and years, and I've never preached on it, but Lord willing, hope to speak a few thoughts about it this morning. We want to jump right to the text and then we'll start, we'll give you some background. Psalms 85 and verse 10. And I hope this continues the flow of the Holy Spirit that we've just experienced in singing and praying and the preaching already here this morning. Let's read in Psalms 85 and 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now, if we just took this out and talked about it, I'm, I think it would be fine, but I do want to give you some background here. This, of course, is a psalm, and a psalm is a song. It is a, a, a song that was written in or the original Hebrew. Some believe that it was written by David. Some believe that it was written by a psalmist many, many years after David, whenever the children of Israel had returned from Babylon. I believe that's the case, that this was written on their return from Babylon when they were captive for 70 years. And the reason I think that is because of what's written here in the first part. So to get the background, you'll find in verses 1 through 4 where the psalmist, he's singing, by the way. So if you can picture, I've written a few hymns in my life, and one of the first things that I do whenever I get some words down is I start thinking of a tune. I start trying to see how this would sound when you sing it. And I'll usually go out somewhere alone by myself. I don't like to do that around people because it sounds really weird and silly. And I can just picture the psalmist maybe walking around the newly rebuilt walls of Jerusalem that Nehemiah had built or that they were under construction. And maybe observing the temple that's being worked on by Ezra, the, uh, the priest, and some of the others. And going around the outskirts of Jerusalem, maybe in the hills, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. And singing, making this vocal, and he begins to sing and say, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. You see, God has returned favor to the land and they have returned from captivity. So in the first few verses there, the psalmist is singing about the, the mercies of God. Talking about how God has forgiven them. God has pardoned their sin. God has brought them back to where they were. And that was a... that if, if you've ever been away from somewhere and come home again, I've done that a few times. 
That's just a unique feeling. (laughs) I remember when we went on our 19-day family trip out to California and all through San Francisco, back down to Yosemite, all those different places that we went. And there was no place that we saw. We saw wonders of the world. We saw Grand Canyon. We saw sequoias. We saw things after one thing after another. But there was no excitement expressed like the excitement that was expressed about 9.30 on that Friday night when we were returning home and about to turn on McCool Road. My guys went ballistic, ballistic. They did not get stand up in the sunroof and yell and shout over sequoias, trees. They did not stand up in the sunroof and scream and shout to the top of their lungs when they saw the Grand Canyon. But when we turned on McCool Road and we were home again, I was, it was crazy. I was like, there's not even any reason for me. It was hurting my ears. No reason for me to say anything. They wouldn't hear me. It was crazy. Home again. And that is exactly what it means when it says brought back the captivity of Jacob. It means home again. Home again. And so the psalmist sings about the former mercies of God in the first three or four verses. And then he begins to plead for the mercy of God. Now that's a little odd, isn't it? He's on top of the mountain. He is looking back down on the valley of affliction where they were captive. And he begins to plead, however, for the mercy of God. Right in the midst of the mercy of God. I believe this psalmist had a lot in his heart, in his mind, that pastors have in their mind. And and I'm not saying you can't have this in your mind if you're not a pastor. But many times through the years when we have been blessed and we'll be on the mountaintop, I have this little tickling in the back of my head or the backside of my heart going, Satan's coming. He's coming. Now, I don't know if you experienced that. I hope you do, because that is a fact. A few weeks ago, Elder Adam Green sent a a video to me of him baptizing a a small little boy, probably a six-year-old little boy, probably about Brother Grady's size, who we baptized last week. Little boy was baptized up there out in the uh, nether regions of Arkansas where that church is and that sh- same stream that I shared with you the young man was baptized when we went to the Rich Mountain Association it was the same little creek and so the, the parent or the church members over here video and you can see this pristine beautiful picturesque view of him taking the little boy down into the water and baptizing him and as soon as he brought that little boy up out of the water he said I baptize you my brother went through all that he baptized him brought him back up and I'm not kidding you I'll show you the video a serpent came up out of the water about 10 feet away and, that, and I'm not joking, I've watched it again and again. That serpent lingered and lingered and lingered and looked and looked like he was fixing to go strike. And then he just disappeared into the water. And a few parents on the side were like, get him out of there, get him out of there. He's still 10 feet away. Brother Adam didn't see it. But I've never seen such a manifestation so quickly of the serpent showing up. <laughs> you say, well, that was just a, a thing in nature. Well, if it is a thing in nature, it's a very good uh, metaphor. <laughs> The serpent will show up when things are going good. Always. That's his way. I like what Brother Furman says. and uh, He says that the devil doesn't come at you straight, straight on. He comes at you sideways. <laughs> That's how the devil works. So I know how this psalmist feels. He is on top of the mountain. They've returned from captivity, and yet he's pleading for the mercy of God. That's something we ought to be doing whether we're on top of the mountain or we're down in the valley. And so as he pleads for the mercy of God, he begins to shift and talk about the salvation of Israel. Now this was obviously, it had an application to the timeliness of them being delivered back from captivity. But he begins to speak very directly about 
salvation in the sense of eternity, of how we're going to be delivered to heaven. He says in verse 7, Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. And now he says in verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people. Notice, he says, I want to see your mercy, and I want to hear words of peace. That's very important to our context here this morning. He's asking for mercy, and he wants to see the end result of peace. Unto His people and to His saints, but let them not turn again to folly. You see the little warning that's in there? Don't let the people turn again to folly. We've already been through 70 years of captivity. Let's don't turn again to our folly. Surely His salvation is nigh them that fear Him, that glory may dwell in our, in our land. And then our text this morning is verse 9 and 10. And this is God's answer to the pleas and the song of the sweet psalmist here. It's His answer. This is God speaking. And God, as being the wild center of the universe that He is, answers the psalmist in an allegory. Y'all know what an allegory is. You've heard of Pilgrim's Pro- Progress by John Bunyan. It's an allegory. If Pilgrim's Progress is a little long, a little hard to follow, it was the second most popular book for uh, probably a century, the Bible, the King James Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. But if it's a little hard to follow, I recommend to you Hind's Feet in High Places. It's a little shorter, and it's an allegory. <laughs> Very good stuff. And here God, our wild center of the universe, answers in an allegory. And He ascribes characteristics, these all, all four of these are characteristics of God, but he ascribes them as though you could visualize a person. It says mercy and truth are met together. Notice the psalmist was asking, show us thy mercy. Speak to us peace. And the Lord says mercy and truth are met together. So when I used to look at this and think more along the lines of maybe this was a picture of a wedding. And I think there are elements of this because you do have a, a very significant kiss going on here. I do think there are elements of this that have to do with the wedding. But I'm more, now after studying this out and this text getting a hold of me last week, I think the Holy Spirit was showing out last week, Brother Luke, because this text had me all week, like the Holy Spirit had you over there where you preached from all week. It had me there all week. And I see this now as somewhat of the Lord describing a fight that's about to take place, or I would say a scrap. A scrap is about to occur. Mercy and truth have encountered each other. There's a conflict here. You see, mercy is the expression of God's love to unworthy and undeserving sinners. You see, it's the same love that He has for His Son before the world was even formed. In all of eternity past and eternity present, eternity future. That's God's love. But in order for God's love to reach out and touch us, it comes to us in the form of mercy because we are depraved sinners, you see? So mercy is being spared from what you deserve. And if you were lining up the opponents here, you're saying, well, mercy's about to scrap with truth. From a natural standpoint, who would you put your money on? You know, mercy to the legalist is just a weak thing, right? Mercy's weak. You know, have no mercy. If, if you break the law, no mercy. You break God's law, you should receive no mercy. And that is true. You know, this kind of, if you want a little clue on how I got to studying on this, I was looking at Exodus 34 where the Lord says that He is full of mercy and yet He will by no means clear the guilty. <laughs> Those things are against each other. How can He show mercy and yet He's going, He says He will not clear the guilty. The answer to that is found many places in the Scripture, but it's found right here. Mercy and truth face off. So if mercy be a man, it means to be spared from what you deserve. If mercy is a man, he would be weak 
He would appear as weak to a legalist, the underdog. But oh, mercy. The Lord says, it says he is rich in mercy. Mercy's rich. It also says that his mercy is enduring. Mercy has endurance. You know, this, if this is a marathon, you want to be looking at mercy because he's going to be one of those Kenyan runners. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? One of those runners from Kenya that can run for a thousand miles and look like they're never winded. <laughs> so if this is a marathon, you don't want to put your money on beefed up truth. <laughs> you know, truth is tough. Reality. Reality is hard, shouldn't it? Brother Luke talking about some of the, the things that we face in this life and people face this. It's harsh. Reality, it just is what it is. It's not like, well, there's three sides to truth. You know, there's my side, there's your side, and then there's the truth in the middle. <laughs> you know, there is only one truth. You know, the truth is reality. And truth, it's, it's beefed up and it's tough sometimes. So you've got little mercy. It, it visualize this giant like Goliath facing off against a little David. You know, mercy's like David and the truth is like Goliath. By the way, that's a pretty good analogy, is it not? Because the truth of what you had there, looking at Goliath, that was a, the truth was this guy naturally should destroy David, right? But I believe mercy was on David's side, was it not? So here you got these two guys facing off mercy and truth. And truth is this big beefed up uh, man that, that can, looks like he can just wipe out mercy. And, tr- and uh, truth gets a little nervous. Truth looks at the situation. Yeah, I know he's little, and I know I can take him. He's just mercy. I think I'm going to call in my dead ringer. <laughs> and so mercy, excuse me, truth, calls in righteousness. What you have here is mercy pitted against truth, and you have righteousness pitted against peace. Mercy and truth are met together. If you, want to, if you want to understand why I'm saying that this is a scrap, the phrase meet together, I'll just give you a couple examples. You can look it up. But the phrase meet together comes from a Hebrew word that occurs several times in the Word of God. And every single time, it, it has to do with an unpleasant situation, a scrap. The first place it occurs is whenever Jacob encounters Esau after he's been gone for 20 years. And the last time Esau said anything to Jacob, he said, I'm going to murder you. I'm going to kill my brother. So it's not a real pleasant experience coming back together. There's nerves, nervousness going on there, right? Another place that this occurs, this phrase meet together occurs, is in Exodus 4 and 24 where we read that the Lord was meeting Moses outside of the inn that Moses was staying at to kill him. <laughs> That's a whole other subject we could talk about. There's a reason why God was going to kill. You see, I thought Moses was the one that was going to deliver the people. At that point, God was not pleased with Moses and he was going to kill Moses. This was not a pleasant meeting. All of the occurrences of, of this meet together has to do with something unpleasant. It's not a let's get together and have a celebration. It's something very, uh, very difficult, something very bad. Another place it occurs is 1 Samuel 25, where the, the dear young lady who was married to the, the, in, the evil man Nabal says that Abigail was married to this evil man and she finds out that her husband has just caused problems with David's men and David's men are on the way to kill the house of Nabal. They're on the way to kill them. Truth is on the way. And they've got their swords drawn 
And Abigail says, there's no, in, in her mind, there's no doubt they're going to come and destroy us because of what my husband has done. And so she goes running out on a donkey to meet them. That's the description there of where they met together. She came off of the donkey and she went down on the ground in front of these hardened soldiers who were coming to kill. <laughs> that was not a very pleasant meeting, was it? And it turned out okay. But over and over again, I think one of the best ones that I see about where it says they met together is in Proverbs 17 and 12. It says, let a bear robbed of her whelps, of her cubs, meet a man. You, you want that to happen? You want to be, you want to be, I just mentioned Sequoia. I just mentioned where we went out there in 2017. There were several times that we were out in some places where there were bears. And I was nervous. I was thinking, I hope we don't meet a bear. You know, I guess I'll have to throw myself and let him eat me and maybe the others are out running. <laughs> but it's not a pleasant experience to meet a bear. It's, and it's not a pleasant experience, even more so, to meet a bear who's lost her cubs. See, this is not a pleasant meeting. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah, it says that the wild beasts have met together with another section of wild beasts. That, that would be something very entertaining from a distance, wouldn't it? They're not going to get together and, and lick each other. They're not going to get together and shake Paul hands with each other. They're going to fight. You know, we've got these little domesticated cats. You know, we, we call Sister Lila our cat woman, and we've got all these cats around the house. And there's an old tomcat out there who's appropriately named Tom. And sometimes he gets over towards the other cat, and they'll just sit there and just, you know, it's very entertaining. <laughs> I got one of them on video one time. There was a foot between them, and they're just doing all this stuff. And the one cat just falls out like something's hit him, you know? That's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Nobody even touched him. He just, he just fell out. It's entertaining. Those are domesticated house cats. Could you imagine a lion and a tiger tying up? Could you imagine, you know, an elephant fighting with a rhinoceros? That's, that's not a very, a very pleasant meeting, is it not? That's the type of phrase that this means when it says mercy and truth are met together. Not a pleasant meeting. They are opposed to each other because here's the deal. Mercy is something that you, you give to someone when they don't deserve it. The truth is that we deserve the wrath of God. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, spare us from your wrath. Show us your salvation. Let us see mercy. <laughs> and so, truth gets a little nervous. So I'm going to call in my dead ringer. Righteousness. I think I can take mercy. But just to be safe, I'm going to bring in somebody that's even bigger than me. And so, mercy says, and you'll allow me this little bit of liberty to give voices to these characters but mercy looks at that and says okay big boy if you're going to do that well i'm going to bring in my dead ringer and, and it would be like this it would be like david standing there before goliath who's 14 feet tall and goliath says okay i'm going to bring in my 20 foot tall brother <laughs> my big brother's going to come in and take care of you and david says well all right well then you know i'm going to get this little toddler over here to come fight your big brother <laughs> could you imagine a little toddler smaller than david come walking out there <laughs> And say, hey, I can take him. It's a mismatch. It's a total mismatch. You've got mercy against truth. And you've got righteousness against peace. A total, complete mismatch. Now, a few years ago, many of you know, and some of you are fans, there's a, a local guy here who won the, the boxing world championship in Tuscaloosa. That's crazy, isn't it? 
I mean, you just don't think about – you think about Tuscaloosa, you think about football. You don't think about boxing, but it's amazing. You know, we've had a world champion who still resides here in Tuscaloosa. And so while he was on his way up or right after he had won, the, I think, the first belt, I decided I wanted to take Brother Asher to go see one of those boxing matches. I thought, man, that would be amazing. It was up in Birmingham. So we went. And don't worry, we hit our eyes in between the rounds. We hit our eyes. So if you're going to go to those boxing matches, you've got to hide your eyes between the rounds. But we were excited. It was just some nervousness going on there. This is amazing. These two men, they're all, they're all slicked down, and they're up there where they're looking like they're going to kill each other. Giant men, huge men. I think the champion over here from Tuscaloosa, Wilder, is six foot seven, huge. And so here they are in their ends of their rings, you know, on each corner of the rings, and we're just excited. We don't know what's fixing to happen. One punch, is he gone? We don't know. And so they come out in the middle of the ring, and how would it be if they came out to the middle of the ring and they, you know, they said, all right, let's have a fair fight. And then they just reached out and they just hugged each other and they said, okay, let's go home. That's pretty much what happens right here. It says righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That word kissed, it can mean an actual you know, kiss on the cheek. It could mean a kiss on the lips. And it can mean an embrace. How would that be? I paid all this money to go see these guys slug it out. And they hug each other and they say, great job, man. Let's go home. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense, would it? But that's exactly what happens here. It says righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Remember, these are all characteristics of God. This is an internal thing with God's characteristics. God is mercy. God is truth. God is righteous. And God is peace. It says that of Jesus all and throughout the New Testament. You know, He is our righteousness. He is full of mercy. And He is our peace. And He is truth. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And it says that they face off and they kiss each other. <laughs> Some fight, huh? Now, the occurrences of this word kiss, I want you to listen carefully. The occurrences of this word kiss. In Genesis 27, it was a kiss of deception when Jacob kissed his father and faked being Esau. You remember that? It says that he kissed his father. It was a kiss of deception. Jacob, once again, we're picking on him. In Genesis 29, it was a kiss of passion. When Jacob, in less than five minutes or ten minutes of meeting poor Rachel, you know, he kisses her. <laughs> don't you know she was stunned? You know, here's this guy, I don't even know him. And he comes up and he kisses me. That was a kiss of passion, by the way. I've said many times through the years, remember that he had to wait another seven years before he kissed her again. Way to go, Dad. You know, keep that guy away. <laughs> but he had to wait another seven years before he kissed her again. But he, it was a kiss of passion. He found his true love. Genesis 45 and 15, if you'll notice the language, it says that Joseph, when he was reunited with his brothers and he told them who he was, he revealed that to them. It says that he wept and he kissed his brothers, all of them. Can y'all picture that? That was a kiss of forgiveness, was it not? In every kiss that he laid on the cheek of his betraying brothers, he was manifesting to them, I forgive you and I love you. In Ruth, the first chapter, the kiss that took place was between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. She kissed them and she said, I'm going back to the promised land. It was a parting kiss, wasn't it? Now, we know that one of them went with her. Ruth went with her. But it was a parting kiss nonetheless. In 1 Samuel 10, we find where Samuel comes and anoints little David. He was probably 14 or 15 years old. He anoints him as the king and it says that he kissed him. That was an anointing kiss of a king. And then we read in 2 Samuel 20 where Joab 
who was a very wicked general, kissed on the cheek as a greeting a general that was on the other side who was also an Israelite. And it says that as he kissed him, he took his knife and he stabbed him in the ribs. It was a betrayer's kiss. A kiss of betrayal. Job spoke in Job 31 of a kiss of idolatry. He said, if I have kissed my hand, which was a symbol of idolatry. I don't know what all that means, but it meant to be idolatrous. Proverbs 7, you read about the strange woman who, when she found the young foolish man on the street, she acted like it was the providence of God that she met him, and it says that she kissed him. (laughs) She was a married woman, and that was a kiss of adultery. And then in the Song of Solomon, the first chapter, the one you've all been waiting for, he said, she says, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's true love's kiss. There's a kiss of true love where Solomon kisses his true love. So as we consider righteousness kissing peace, they're about to face off and fight. And then righteousness winds up kissing peace. Is it a kiss of deception? Is it a kiss of passion? Is it a kiss of forgiveness? Is it a parting kiss? Is it an anointing a king kiss? Is it a betrayer's kiss? Is it, does it include elements of idolatry in that, in that kiss? Is it an adulterous kiss? Or is it a true love's kiss? You know what the answer is? Yes. Yes. It's all of that. Because when righteousness kissed peace, and mercy wins, and peace wins, we find all that coming together on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of your deceptions and my deceptions and all of the lack of forgiveness and all of the partings that we've had in this life and all of the betrayals that we've caused upon of our our Lord and all of the idolatrous ways that we have and all of the ways that we have committed adultery on the Lord by turning from Him, He took that upon Himself in the righteous kiss where truth completely was vindicated Christ took their sins upon Him. It was a kiss of all those things. And by the way, praise God, it was true love's kiss. It was the mercy of God manifesting itself, muscling itself. You say, that guy could never win a battle, and yet he completely obliterated truth, and he completely obliterated righteousness. You say, how do we know that? Read the next verse. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now let me ask you a question. Let's be practical here. If something's going to spring out of the earth, what has happened? (laughs) If something's going to look down from heaven, what has happened? Truth has died. Righteousness has died and ascended to heaven. You see that? Righteousness looks down from heaven and truth springs out of the earth. Could there be any more allegorical significance to that than whenever three days and three nights after the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself on the cross and mercy met truth and righteousness kissed peace and righteousness died and truth died in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and three days and three nights later, the Lord Jesus Christ, truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Isn't that beautiful? All on this betrayer's kiss. So it's all of those. Now you think about that. I can remember years ago when I, whenever I met Sister Tracy and I asked her to marry me. What a great day that was. That was a glorious day in my life. Highlight of my life. I got down on my knee and I said, here's a ring. Will you marry me? Praise God. I didn't really have any doubt. She'd said, all of my folks had a little bit of doubt because we kept waiting to get there for so long. They were like, you think she said yes? 
I didn't really have any doubt whatsoever that she was going to say, yeah, I was certain that she would. Otherwise, I never would have asked. <laughs> but so I asked her to marry me and I put that ring on her finger and I kissed her. I said, thank the Lord. I'm going to tell you what I did not do after that. I did not take her by the, by the arm or the shoulder and say, now come over here, I want to show you something. I want to show you. <laughs> Here's my grave. I'm fixing to lay down and die. You understand that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He met His bride and He kissed His bride and He took her to the grave and He said, now I'm going to lay down and die. That's not what you're thinking about whenever you get engaged. You're thinking about planning a wedding, getting to the wedding day. I'm not thinking about, let's go dig a grave. That's something that kind of, you older folks, you know, that's something that comes a little later. Mom and dad, they go and they pick out their gravestone, you know, they get a little later. But when you get engaged, you don't go pick out your gravestone and where you're going to be laid to rest, right? (laughs) But our Savior did. When righteousness kissed peace, righteousness laid down and died. Isn't that beautiful? The first thing on your mind whenever you get engaged is not talking about a funeral. Y'all remember a few years ago whenever Brother Aaron passed away, we had his funeral over there, and we had all those funeral flowers. And just a couple days later, maybe a few days later, we used those funeral flowers, those funeral um, decorations, in the wedding of Brother Mackey and Aunt Lorraine. You know, the funeral flowers became the wedding flowers. Well, here we have... The wedding flowers becoming the funeral flowers. They get engaged, they meet, they have their first, they have their engagement, and then he dies. But praise be to God, that wasn't the end. He kissed his bride and he laid down and died. You know why he did that? It's because in order for him to marry his bride, she had to be cleansed. She had to be holy. She had to be without sin. So as sad as it is, and as mournful as we would look upon that grave and say, He laid down and died? We rejoice in knowing that when He laid down and died, when righteousness kissed peace, and whenever mercy prevailed over truth, we see that the truth in Christ sprang forth from the ground, and He had cleansed her, and He could be married to His bride forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that glorious? Truth is resurrected from the ground. And we're married to Christ forever. You see, Christ is righteousness. Christ kissed peace. That's our peace. He was chastised for our peace. Christ is truth. He says, I am truth. And Christ, praise God, is not legalistic and going to bring the hammer down on His people, but He's full of mercy. Who can broker a deal like that? You see, the psalmist is saying, Lord, be be, uh, favorable to us in the future. Lord, we want your salvation. Show it to us. How does it work? And the Lord speaks in an allegory. And he says, mercy must be satisfied over truth. And righteousness must die at the hands of peace. And in my son, all of that would come forth. And truth would spring forth from the ground. And righteousness would look down from heaven with a smile on his face. It literally means when it says righteousness, look down, it literally means to open the window and look down and smile. Isn't it wonderful to know that this scrap that took place all within the character of God, God's mercy, God is truth, God is righteousness, God is peace. Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord didn't leave a part of himself down in that ground, but he brought truth out of the ground and that truth is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And the psalmist says, I'm satisfied. That's good information. The Lord is pleased to save us. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful to know? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In the greatest cosmic battle of all time, it took place within the character of God Himself. And so it took God to satisfy all of that. It took God Himself. That's a glorious truth that we should rejoice in. That truth has sprung out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven, and mercy and peace is, is upon His people for all of time. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing some song.